The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Tori. Appreciate that. Um, good morning, everybody. Uh, if, uh, if you're brand new here, my name is Scott, uh, and I uh, want to welcome you here. Uh, we're really glad uh, to have you here. I'd love to meet you after the service. If you've been here for, for 30 years, so I'm really glad to be here with you as well. Uh, you are family to me. And, uh, and uh, speaking of family, this uh, past week, uh, you may have gotten an email in your inbox, a couple of emails uh, indicating uh, that this has actually been a milestone week because our, our worship director of 30 years, uh, Lynn Hodges, is, uh, is honorably retiring from her role uh, beginning in January, uh, on January the 1st, and also Missy Wallace, who has launched our Faith and Work initiative called Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. Uh, is going to be transitioning and working from Nashville to serve Redeemer City to City and their global faith and work uh, effort. And so uh, I just want to encourage you, they're both giving us until January 1st uh, before we have to replace them in their leadership roles, uh, even though they're both irreplaceable uh, in so many ways. But I, I just want to encourage everybody to, to grab them, give them thanks uh, for the way that they've faithfully served us, and, uh, and also to pray, because uh, it's going to be uh, a challenge to fill those big shoes. And uh, also a milestone this past week. Uh, Christ Pres Cool Springs, our, our location that meets in the Cool Springs area along 65 uh, uh, South there, uh, celebrated their one-year anniversary uh, last Sunday, and they now uh, have uh, roughly 50 kids and 150 adults meeting to worship every uh, week at the Embassy Suites, and they were added to our, our other uh, satellite location uh, called CPC Music Row, pastored by Stacy Croft. So, uh, continue to pray for our our partnered congregations as well. But uh, as for us, uh, like those two congregations today, we are diving in here to what we're calling the last Great Commission. We talked about the first Great Commission, the Commission to Work, uh, from Genesis chapter one last week, and now this is the last. Great Commission. These were some of the last words that Jesus' disciples heard him speak to them. But before we get to this, I um, want to point out Jesus' emphasis in verse 20, where he says, teach people all over the world to observe. Uh, this whole series has been a, a series of, of, of asking all of us to observe some things or to practice some things. And uh, there are three headings with six practices. And just by way of recap, uh, here they are. Uh, uh, To worship, to be fully present 
uh, with the local church every single Sunday. That includes when you're out of town, and it's especially uh, when you're in town, uh, to be here with your church family and to be fully present with Jesus every day. So those are the first two asks. And then the second would be under the connect uh, heading, and that would be to take every opportunity to gather with your group and to befriend and bring in people who don't have a church. And now lastly, we are uh, covering the serve category last week and this week, and uh, they're kind of bunched up together uh, in these last two sermons. One would be to strengthen the church through serving and giving, and then to enhance flourishing by serving your work, serving your world, and serving people in need. So, um, so that's the recap. I'll give it again at the end of, of uh, the sermon before the Lord's Supper. Uh, but uh, today uh, is, um, is our last message, and tomorrow is Columbus Day. So I'll start this way. Tor- tomorrow is Columbus Day. Uh, it is also, many people don't know, it's also Indigenous People Day. Uh, and so you've got two groups of people who view the year 1492 in two very different ways. For, for one group of people, it's, it's those uh, mainly from European descent uh, who see 1492 as the year that Christopher Columbus discovered America and, um, and, and a whole frontier of new land and opportunity was gained. And then you have the 2.2 to 7 million natives or indigenous peoples who uh, would say that that was when they lost claim to American soil. And so, so for one group, it's interpreted as a gain. For another group, it's interpreted and experienced as a loss, which is a reminder, this, this particular day that we commemorate every year in our country, that whenever there's a takeover of anything, generally there's one group that, uh, that gains from it or it interprets it as a gain, and then there's another group that interprets it as a loss. This is true in mergers and acquisitions. Where, where something is gained by one group when we acquire a new company and, and, and yet something is lost, a loss of control, a loss of power, a loss of influence, a loss of the past and of history uh, when, when your company is the one being acquired. Um, let's see what else. Uh, politics, there's a transfer of power. You know, from one year to the next or from one administration to the next, one group will feel like this is a new beginning. It's a new day, and, and the other group will feel like this is the end of the world. It's all about perspective and how we interpret the takeover. Gentrification is another one. For some, it represents an improved neighborhood and, and, and a new future and new opportunities, and for another group, it represents the loss of heritage, history, and the past and of place. It's like those philosophers from the rock band Semisonic say in their song, Closing Time, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. The kingdom of God is different though. When Jesus comes into a place or into a person or to a thing and takes over, the tide is supposed to rise for everybody. The aim is the flourishing of all. The aim is for everybody to look at the takeover and say, this is a win. This is a win. You know, in chapter 11, John the Baptist is in jail and 
you know, for, for unjust reasons. And, and he sends message to Jesus, his cousin, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior that we've been expecting all these years? And, and Jesus sends message back to John. Tell John that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor receive good news. And then by the third century AD, after Christians began practicing this last great commission that we're talking about, they had about three years to start working it out. By the third century AD, the entire fabric of the Roman Empire had been transformed, not by the government, not by a government takeover, but by, but by a subversive kind of love, a subversive kind of, of moving in to, to society and into communities and into places of work and, and life and play and making things better, following Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life, in other words. Caesar was losing influence and Christianity was on the rise, even though Caesar had all of the, all of the power and all the resources, because everybody was starting to discover, even people in government, that Christianity is better for Rome than the Roman government is better for Rome. Because when the kingdom of God takes over, he comes to make his blessing flow as far as the curse is found. See what I did there? Christmas in October. I've already started listening to the music. I listened to Charlie Brown's Christmas this morning as I was putting on final touches of the sermon. Three things that this great commission is after. A message for better thinking, a posture for better love, and news of a better future. So, so let's start with a message for better thinking. Jesus says to his disciples and to us all, that's a comprehensive word, all authority has been granted in heaven and on earth. That's everywhere, every person, every place, everything. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, you, my followers, go and make disciples. A disciple, the, the, the literal definition there is a learner. And, and anybody who is engaged in a learning endeavor, this is what your goal is, to change. Otherwise, there would be no need for learning unless there's a mission for change, for something better. And it starts in Christian discipleship with what Romans chapter 12 calls the renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed anymore to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, start by loving God with your mind. And that leads, when you love God with your mind, when your mind has been transformed, when your thinking has been transformed by the truth of Jesus, it begins this lifelong process of rearranging the furniture of your life around the perfect will of God. That's what Romans 12.2 says. So, so every person in the world, I, I think deep down, desires to thrive, desires to flourish, desires to live in a full and abundant way. And uh, whether or not we, we, we ever get to that goal of living in a full and abundant way hinges on what we look to for our source material to help us get there. One option is the pattern of this world and the other, which we'll call expressive individualism, and the other is what Scripture calls the renewal of the mind, or, or as Jesus said, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So 
Jesus is amplifying the role and centrality of Scripture and truth in discipleship. So part of what discipleship does from a Christian perspective is accomplish alignment of people's thoughts and speech and life to the Creator's design. And, and, and the world's pattern, the pattern of this world that Paul talked about in Romans 12, does the, the opposite. It seeks to align the world outside of me to me. See, Christian discipleship, I am submitted in order to align myself to God. The pattern of this world or express, expressive individualism is, is to align the world to me and expect the world to align to me. So expressive individualism, I'll, I'll define it more carefully in a minute, but, but it really shows up at, at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when the serpent comes in and says to Adam and Eve and to the human race, no one has the right to define you or to direct you, even God. The only person who has a right to define you and to direct you is you. That's what expressive individualism means. And, and what it says is that the only idea that you need saving from is the idea that you need saving from anything, including your own ideas. The doctrine of expressive individualism goes this way. This is the pattern of this world that the Bible talks about. It's a me centrality. And here's the doctrine. Number one, be true to yourself. Number two, follow your heart, or as Jiminy Cricket said, let your conscience be your guide. Number three, live your truth. Number four, express yourself. We see it showing up even here at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even when this miracle is happening before their eyes, Jesus appears to them, and in verse 17 it says, some doubt it. Some doubt it. Doubt, ever since sin came into the world, ever since human beings sought independence from God, doubt has become a sexy thing. Doubt is so much sexier than certainty and conviction, according to the pattern of this world. Doubt is sexy when expressive individualism is your dogma. <clears throat> Even Christian bookstores now are filled with books about doubt, specifically the virtue of doubt. And even in Christian bookstores, shelves are lined, some shelves are lined with books that call into question long-held, biblically supported and undergirded truths, such as the exclusivity of Christ, that Christ is the way to God, the substitutionary atonement that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we need Jesus to come in as our substitute. Otherwise, we are without hope, as our membership vows say, except through his sovereign mercy. Doubt about things like judgment for those who do not repent and turn to Christ. Doubt about the long-held universal, worldwide, and biblically undergirded teaching on things like marriage and sexuality. The sexy question, even in some professing Christian circles now, is has God really said? Has God really said? Amos, the prophet, called it a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. And when there's a famine for hearing the word of the Lord, 
There's a loss of things like certainty and shared belief systems. And the fruit is things like confusion and polarization. I'll give you an example. Remember, expressive individualism says that nobody has the right to define you or to direct you except you. But when we try to live this way, it actually leads to chaos and confusion. One example is a a controversial Netflix documentary called The Rachel Divide. Uh, You may have seen this or heard about it. It's it's a woman who, uh, she's a white woman who says that she was She was born as a black person, and she identifies as a black person, but she was born in a white body. And so, I was born with the wrong body. And so, what she did was she she would take dark makeup and cover her skin with dark makeup. She joined the NAACP in her town. She actually became a leader in the NAACP in her town. And then then people in the African-American community found out. And understandably so. It's not right to appropriate another culture's experience and, 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 and masquerade it as your own, especially when you grew up not having to deal with, with the pains, the unique pains of the black experience. And then there's the, the other world where, uh, and, and this, is, this is a huge amplified conversation, maybe you're going to say I'm being politically correct for even, incorrect for even raising the subject, but, but now... Uh, somebody who's born male can identify as female and, and, and vice versa, and, and now there are laws being passed in certain places where, where not even parents can speak into that in, into their young children's lives. But even those who embrace that dog, that expression of expressive individualism can only do so to a point. Martina Navratilova, famous tennis player, longtime LGBTQ uh, advocate and champion, Uh, began to um, question whether or not somebody born male could play on the female tennis circuit because it, in her opinion, posed an unfair advantage to people who were born female. And then she was treated by many in the movement as, as a betrayer to the cause. Because expressive individualism, according to her, could only go to a certain point until it's not fair to some people. You know, I have a nephew. Uh, he's 13 years old, and, and his mom, my sister-in-law, told him a while ago, I want you to clean your room, and I want you to clean your room now. It's filthy. And he says, not going to do it. I identify as a boy without hands, and so I can't… I can't do this work, and I'm not going to do this work, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's a pretty clever 13-year-old. He recognizes where we are. As a, he recognizes the absurdity of this, the pattern of this world, that you can just say whatever you want about you and define you and direct you, and nobody can say anything about it. I can tell you that I have a lot of hair, and I don't, but don't dare you tell me that I don't have a lot of hair. I'll sue you. (laughs) I used to identify as a boy who could fly, and I broke my arm. Jumped out of a tree. It really, really did happen. You know, one pastoral situation I encounter quite often is parents who are mystified. You know, they'll come in and they'll say, you know, I raised my kids in church, 
We, we, we even had our kids memorize the catechism, read the Bible in our home on a regular basis. And, and the parents are shocked because, because now their teenagers and their college students are saying, hey, mom, dad, if, if two people of, of the same sex or two people of a different faith love each other, who in the world are we to say that that's wrong? And what do we expect, though? And this is Tim Keller's observation. Our children have been catechized by the world a lot more than they've been catechized by the church, especially when people come to church 1.7 times a week. I get your kids for less than an hour a month. Social media gets them four hours a day. See? It's a formation issue. It's, it's, it's a formation thing. Our practices determine the outcomes. When we are formed a certain way by a certain pattern, we become that pattern. It shouldn't be rocket science to us. Either Jesus is Lord and we submit our feelings to the truth, or Jesus is a consultant and our feelings are the truth. Which is it going to be? It can't, it can't be kind of some hybrid of both. There is no mashup. There is no, there is no fusion of Jesus is Lord and Jesus is consultant. No, he's one or the other. And if Jesus is Lord, that's the path to life and peace and health, and that's the message and the hope that Christians are called to bring to the world. If Jesus is consultant, then, then it's going to be a train wreck. And for many of us, it already is. We're, we're, we're going to live inconsistently. We're, we're going to live with no shared convictions. And it's going to be chaos. It's going to be mayhem. Even people in the same community and in the same movements are going to do this with each other. You know, Christian's job in the Great Commission, our job is to evangelize a coherent, cohesive, life-giving message that comes from the mind of God. Okay, so I got to go on. Got to move on. I could keep going. But look, here, here's an outcome of that. If, the fee, if, if our feelings are the truth and nobody dare tell us what's right and what's wrong, then who's to say that Hitler was wrong? Who's to say that the racists are wrong? Who's to say that it was wrong to drive two airplanes into the Twin Towers in New York City? Who's to say that's wrong? Who's to say? Who's to say that child abuse is wrong? Who's to say? Well, the majority. Who's majority? Hitler's majority believed that it was okay to try to exterminate the Jews. The American majority believes it's okay to try to exterminate people with special needs and disabilities, especially those with Down syndrome in the womb. Who's majority? See where we go if feelings are Lord. There is zero basis for moral outrage about anything. Live consistently. If you're going to say that my feelings are Lord, then live consistently. Don't judge anyone. Don't dare you judge anyone. Don't dare. See? And all this time, you've been thinking, you've been building your whole worldview on telling other people, don't dare judge. You understand how inconsistent you are. A posture for better love, that's the second one. Make disciples of all nations. This is, 
This is a way of saying many things. Number one, God so loved the whole world, the whole human race. But here's what it, where I'm going to camp out today. This also means add to your number, including your enemies. Figure out a way to add even your enemies to your number. You may have caught this story. Ellen DeGeneres was recently caught on video at a football game enjoying herself with George W. Bush and he enjoying himself with her. And some in her community, as well as in his, said, you have committed the unpardonable sin. You have betrayed the cause by rubbing shoulders with one of them. You know, Ellen went on her show and responded this way. I'm friends with George Bush. I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. Just because I don't agree with someone on everything doesn't mean I'm not going to be friends with them. When I say be kind to one another, I don't mean the people that think the same way that you do. I mean be kind to everyone. Now, why was this newsworthy? Why did this go viral on the internet? Why did it become a story? Because it's so unusual to talk like that in this climate. And yet, it became a story because it's so strangely attractive to pretty much everyone. Oh, look at that. Look at that. She's being nice to somebody that she shouldn't be nice to. Hmm. Biblically, though, this whole you know, practice of, of extending kindness to all, this is supposed to be the assumed norm. We should be surprised not when a Christian is nice to their enemy. We should be surprised when a Christian is not kind to their enemy because this is the assumed norm for Christians and churches. And it's actually one of the most powerfully persuasive realities, according to Jesus, that draws people to Jesus Christ. Love of enemy. All nations. You know, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 interprets the Great Commission. You know, Jesus comes back from heaven and says to his disciples, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, let's, let's talk about Samaria for a minute. Samaria, that was the racial, political, social, and moral outcast extraordinaire in the minds of the people who were hearing this great commission from Jesus who were from Jewish descent. Jews and Samaritans did not get along together. And yet Jesus, even in his ministry, is constantly pushing against that way of thinking about them. You know, in Luke chapter 9, the, the disciples said, hey, let's, let's call fire down from heaven to destroy these Samaritans. And Jesus' response was to rebuke his disciples for even thinking such a thing. Luke chapter 10, parable of the good Samaritan. Jesus turns, the, a Jew turns the Samaritan into the hero of the parable. John chapter four, he encounters a Samaritan woman at, at the well and she's, she's been with five different men. And he loves her so well that she can't help but go back into her city and tell everybody that she can, come and see a man. 
who told me everything that I ever did. You've got to meet this man. In Acts chapter 2, it said that the believers were living such a, in such a life-giving way in their communities, in their cities and municipalities that they were enjoying the favor of all the people, of all the people. How do we explain these people? How do we explain them, their, their weird beliefs? You know, Jesus says, teach them all that I've taught you. Teach them all that I've shown you. Teach all of it to them. And what's going to happen? They're, they're going to think we're weird. Virgin birth, resurrection, water to wine, love your enemies. And their behaviors are strange. They're, they're so conservative with their bodies in the bedroom. One person for a lifetime? And they're so promiscuous with their money. They're so generous. They're so strange. And such a strange demeanor in a world where, where power is king. They're so humble and kind and open-handed and non-belligerent. It was this unassailable love that won the Roman Empire for the gospel. You know, one historian said that the Christian secret was their kindness to all. They infected the world with love. How'd they do it? They served. They served the weak, the poor, the sick, the widow, the orphan, the disabled, the immigrant, the refugee, the crook, the adulterer, and the prostitute. But not only did they serve, they baptized. Baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son, everyone who believes. You know what baptism means? It means inclusion. It means belonging. It means receiving them into your circle. The Christians said, hey, we've got a movement and we've got a king and we've got a kingdom and anyone can get in on it. All you have to do is humble yourself. All you have to do is acknowledge your need. All you have to do is come empty-handed. That's why the only people who really seemed offended were, were the, the self-righteous and people with political power. Those were the only ones who, 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 seemed, who seemed to feel that this Jesus takeover was problematic. Everyone else felt like the Jesus takeover was just the, the best thing that's ever happened to the world. And then lastly, news of a better future. Jesus says in verse 20, behold, it's just another way of saying, look, pay attention to this. Get a load of this. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Wherever Jesus is, remember, he's come up from the dead. Wherever Jesus is, resurrection happens all around him. Resurrection happens to the people, the places, and the things all around him wherever Jesus shows up post-resurrection. And he says, I'm going to be with you always. And the promise that, that, that goes with this promise, I'll be with you always, is the promise of Revelation 21. I am always making all things new. I am continually making all things new. That's how the Greek reads. An ongoing present tense of improvement of everything. You know, it's like Lewis said, every day better than the day before. It's like Tolkien said, every, everything's sad, becoming untrue. This last great commission is our invitation to participate in the healing of the world. You know, Anthony Ray Hinton uh, was 
sentenced to death row, and he sat on death row for 30 years for a crime he did not commit. And the lawyer, uh, Brian Stevenson, and his team drew attention to um, the racially motivated incarceration that happened there. And it was wrong. Evidence was buried. Evidence was denied. Evidence was overlooked. False narratives were, were, were advanced. And the man spent 30 years on death row. And he said while he was on death row, he would use his imagination to keep himself from becoming insane. He imagined that he was married to Halle Berry. And then later he imagined that he was married to Sandra Bullock. He imagined that he won Wimbledon five times and that he was recruited by the New York Yankees to play baseball. He imagined that he traveled the world in a private jet. Here's, here's, here's an excerpt from the book. All I wanted was an hour of freedom and escape, an hour away from the rats and the roaches and the smell of death and decay. We were all slowly dying. You know, what, what, what Hinton is imagining is an escape from the reality of what Tolkien called the discatastrophe. You know, you've heard of, of, of a dystopian story, a discatastrophe, a, a story that ends in death. A story that denies that the happily ever after story could even be possible. You know, he used his imagination to escape this reality of death. And yet this last great commission is our invitation to tell the world that the world can do the opposite. You can use your imagination to enter the reality of what Tolkien called eucatastrophe, which is a story that ends in joy. It's the happily ever after story. You know, N.T. Wright put it this way, hope. Future-looking hope is imagining God's future into the present moment, imagining God's future, God's promised future into the present moment, and then conducting our lives accordingly. How do we participate in this? It's really simple. Follow through with the six things we've been asking you. Follow through with them. Start to order your life around these things, being fully present with the church every Sunday, with Jesus every day. Take every opportunity to gather with your group, befriend and bring in people who don't have a church, strengthen the church through serving and giving, and enhance flourishing by serving your work, your world, and people in need. And maybe, just maybe, we will start to witness something that looks and feels like a takeover, but it will be the kind of takeover, just as it was in Rome, that almost the whole world wants. Because in this takeover and in this kind of takeover alone, does the tide rise for everybody and not just some. The table in front of us because practices can be exhausting. They can be exhausting and we can lack energy for them. And that's why God feeds us. That's why we eat. That's why we drink. To be strengthened and nourished and quenched in order to have the energy to do the things that matter. And what better thing for the Lord to do for us every single week than to give us a table to approach and to dine off of? 
And so as a minister serving in Jesus' name, I'd like to invite the other ministers and elders and deaconesses and deacons and, and other servers to please approach the table as I remind us all that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, when it seemed that his life and the life of the disciples was going to end in discatastrophe, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. What does this mean? What's Jesus signaling here? The story of the world is not the story of discatastrophe. It's the story of eucatastrophe. It's the story that ends in joy and continues in joy and grows in joy forever and ever and ever. You, you eat for the strength to imagine that reality and that promise into your present so that you can go out into the world and serve the world as those who love your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the bread and the cup. Would you feed our souls and nourish our souls even as you feed and nourish our bodies with your abundant presence, with your rich and reliable promises? Lord, draw near to us now, we pray. And Lord, I'm, I'm reminded too, even as we approach these tables in communities, in groups, that you did not give the Great Commission to an individual. You gave the Great Commission to churches to communities, to tribes 